Let's come back together, find our seats. Good morning. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here at Village, and I have my voice back this week, mostly. It it, um, went out again Friday, but um, we're back, so hopefully it'll last for the next um, hour and a half. Just kidding, yeah, 40 40 minutes or so as we dig into God's Word. Um, Probably that, that happened, right, because I was cheering so loudly for the angels at the church angel game. And I was, I was cheering for them. They, they won and it was a good game. Earlier in the, in the year, in the ba- or real early in the baseball season, Susie and I were able to go to an angel game and we were sitting right behind the dugout and which was really cool. The players were coming up and we were watching them warm up. And, you know, I, I was thinking what, what would have happened if I would have decided I'm just going to climb over this fence and I'm going to join them in the dugout because they, they're people like me and I can meet them and we can, you know, get along and tell stories and all that. What would have happened? Security would have been on me before I could have even shaken one hand probably because that's just a thing. Why? Because there are certain requirements to be in the dugout. There are certain requirements. For instance, you, you need to play baseball or you need to have a press credential, or you need to work for the angels. Pretty much those are the requirements, and I meet none of those. And so it would have been a place that I would not have belonged because I didn't have the right qualifications. And we, we think of this, we can think of all kinds of places where that's true. Just try to break into Club 33 at Disney and see what happens. And, and we know this is true, and what's interesting is when we think those are external qualifications, right? You have to be do this or be able to do this or have this ability. But more and more in business, businesses are discovering that the internal qualifications matter just as much. There was an article that was recently republished actually in Boss Magazine. And one of the intro statements was, however, is the resume really the best way to to determine which job candidates will bring a high level of integrity, passion, and diversity of thought to the job? And they go on to say, and, and these are things that are not new to us if we if we've studied Scripture and looked at God's wisdom. They went on to say, the link between principles and profitability is incontrovertible. A business will be more successful and profitable if its leaders model value-based leadership. The next logical conclusion is, in order to create a strong culture of character, hire individuals who similarly espouse values-based leadership. And I just wanted to add in there, duh. Um, Such management is exhibited by leaders who live their lives with integrity, ethics, and values. And, And so it goes on to describe how we should be looking at internal qualifications for hiring people. This is the business world. This is the secular world. And they're finally getting what God has said in his word, that what is on the inside matters, character matters, integrity matters, walking with God matters. Today, as we come to Psalm 24, and we're in the middle of a a summer series on Psalms where we're able to hit a bunch of different Psalms, and it's a lot of fun. I love seeing the worship Psalms. I love seeing the wisdom Psalms um, and, and the Psalms of Ascent. We've covered some of those. Today, the Psalm is talking about worship, but what qualifications, what internal qualifications are needed to come to worship effectively? 
what should be in our hearts as we walk through those double doors in the back and sit down and prepare to worship the King of Kings. That's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 24. And so we want to think about that. We want to think, and even this morning, think, how did you come this morning? Because we all came with different situations at home, right? And different situations happening. How prepared am I to worship? What is the heart that I came with this morning? And so the psalmist is really going to cover three different sections. There's three different stanzas. It's a little bit of call response. And he's going to answer three major questions. Why worship God? Why is he the one we worship? How should we come to worship? And then ending with who is God? Who is God? Because really the answer for how we come to worship isn't us just trying harder. The answer is a deeper understanding of who God is. So turn with me to Psalm 24 as we explore this psalm. It's only 10 verses, but it is powerful. It's a psalm. I remember a friend of mine quoting all the time in church when we were growing up, and it stuck with me. Who is the king of glory? And we we sang about that this morning. But we want to look at the whole psalm. And what's interesting is last year, actually, Pastor Andrew spoke on, on Psalm 23. Familiar psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And at the end of that psalm, the psalmist writes, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 24 says, how is it possible that I can dwell in the house of the Lord? Because I'm not God. I don't have the credential that says this is God's house. So I I don't have admission in the traditional way or the ownership way. So how is it possible that I can dwell in the house of the Lord And the psalmist is going to beautifully answer that in the psalm today. It's a psalm of coming to the temple or coming to the sanctuary to worship and inviting God to join us here and inviting God to be part of that. Historically, we're always trying to figure out, okay, what were the historical reasons for this psalm? Because each of the songs was written for a reason, just like songs today are. And and probably one of the, the, the two most probable reasons. One is that this could have been when David was escorting the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriat Arim, where it was, was stored for a while after it came back from the Philistines. He was escorting that back to Jerusalem to the house of the Lord. And there was celebration. And there was, there was joy because the Ark was finally coming back. And, and that's a possibility. Another possibility that I think is even more likely is when the army would come back from victory. Remember the Ark of the Covenant would go out before them? Um, when the army would come back to, to Jerusalem from victory, the Ark would come in first and they would come in and it was a triumphant victory song of praise to the King of Kings, to the King of Glory. And that might have been how it was written, but it's interesting because it stuck. And, you know, a song has a reason for being written, but then it's stuck in the songbook. We still have it in Psalms. And so the reason it's stuck, I believe, is because it comes back to how do we enter into relationship with God? How do we enter into the presence of the mighty, victorious God and worship him with all of our hearts? If I had to summarize the psalm today, and I put this at the top of your notes, it says to come to the creator king of glory and worship and experience his victories, we are to be right in our heart and actions, wholly devoted to seeking and following him. 
And so we want to, in the next 30 minutes, explore this and explore these three stanzas. The first question, the verses 1 and 2 answer is, why does God deserve our worship and allegiance? Why God? And we may think, especially if you've grown up in a Christian home, you may be thinking, Pastor Ron, duh, God is God. But we live in a post-Christian world. Why does God deserve praise and worship? Why not me? I'm a pretty nice guy. Maybe we, you know, we, or, or we can have others stand up here and we can worship a different person every week. No, right now you're like, oh, that's gross. Because we know in our hearts that a person that is worshipped has to be worthy of that worship. So that's where the psalmist starts in verses 1 and 2. He starts with this foundational question. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We get two verses, two quick verses that answer that question by saying God made and owns all things. God made and owns all things. Who deserve, why, or why does God deserve our worship? He made and owns everything. It's his. We are his. We are the work of his hands. And so the psalmist, and remember these are poems designed to give you images and designed to, to make impressions on us. He starts by saying, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. That can be translated, and some of your translations probably translate it, and everything in it. And so it's saying, everything you see, everything you saw on the way here, this all was made from the stuff that God made. Without God's creation, there is nothing. There is no building, there are no trees, there are no people. Everything was made by God. And so whereas verse 1 is more the inanimate things, verse, or the second half of verse 1 is the world and those who dwell therein. And he gets to people. Even people are the creation of God. Verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He made everything. And the, the visual image there was one, if you visually look at a sea, it sort of looks like land is floating on the sea. And so he's giving this picture of the sea and the land and that God orchestrated it all. God made it all. Why does the psalmist start with this in a psalm on how we come to worship? He started it because he is showing that God has the right to authority over all of his creation. When you create something, you have a right to authority over that. And he created everything. He, he has a claim to it. He has a claim to everything in this world. But more importantly, he has a claim to every person in this world. He created you. He created me. And he longs to be our God. And we worship him because he is worthy as creator, as the one in authority. He made us and he owns all things. Now, now what does it mean that the earth is the Lord's? Because the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's. It's Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. And, and there's a whole lot of things we could go to, but just some, some quick thoughts. It means he sustains it. And, and that's even going to verse 2, the founded and established means he not only created, he keeps it running. Do you know that without God's active hand, everything spins apart like that? Nothing lasts. God is still sustaining creation. The earth is the Lord's means he has authority to ask what he wants. And we should submit. He has authority to ask 
what he wants, and we should submit. Now, we know that that will always be from a loving God, that will always be from a righteous God, and we can trust that whatever he asks is for our good and his glory. He has that authority. The world is his. The earth is his. The earth is his, and, and the fact that he created it also means he knows what's best. He, he has the owner's manual. He made the owner's manual because he made the earth. In a car, you have an owner's manual, right? What happens if you choose to ignore it and think you know better? Oh, it says change the oil every 5,000 miles. I think 50,000 is pretty good. Then you're buying a new engine. You're, you're, I mean, it, it's not good. Oh, it says this takes unleaded gasoline. You know what? Diesel's a little cheaper today. <laughs> Follow the owner's manual, right? We, we, for, we would say, duh. Well, if, if the earth is made by God, and it is, then shouldn't we follow his owner's manual? Shouldn't we do what he asks? He has that right. He has that claim. The fact that the earth is the Lord's also means he has the right to judge. In fact, the responsibility to judge those that don't follow him. It also means that all creation exists for him. And so the foundation of this chapter is why, why does God deserve our worship? He made everything. He owns everything. He is above all things. He is supreme. There is no one greater that deserves our worship. I was, I was scrolling through YouTube this morning. Actually, I was getting on our, our church channel. And off to the right, they have videos that they suggest for you. And one of the videos was Rufus the Regal Rooster, a tribute. I did not click on it. You'd be very proud of me. Do you guys know who Rufus is, though? Rufus is a rooster at Knott's Berry Farm that just runs around wild. Out where the cars are, I don't know, those of you with passes, have you seen Rufus? Yeah, we've seen Rufus. Well, now we're, we're making tributes to Rufus. The rooster. I don't know if there's been more than one Rufus. If I was not, I'd make sure I have a replacement. But um, is Rufus worthy of, of a tribute? Well, maybe, because it's in humor, but would he be worthy of worship? It just, as I'm talking about being worthy of worship, and that comes up, I'm like, the royal rooster? A tribute? Really? It's a bird. Probably tastes great over rotisserie, but I I don't know. I don't know, do you eat roosters, or is that just hens? uh, (laughs) um, Knott's is going to revoke my pass. (laughs) But it's a valid question to say, why is God worthy of worship? Why does he deserve all glory? And that he, the psalmist is going to come back to that at the end. But he made and he owns all things. All things. And so when we sin, when we do our own thing, we are shaking our fist at the creator of the universe. We are denying that he knows what's best. We are denying that he has authority and a claim to us. And so recognizing the creator, recognizing his claim is essential to worship. If we don't recognize that, we are still worshiping. It's just not God. We are worshiping ourselves if we think we know better. And so no creator, it's convenient because now there's no responsibility to worship. Now there's no accountability for our sin. And so I see why we want to eliminate God as creator. 
in our culture because we want to eliminate the accountability. When we're seeking sin, we try to get away from accountability. We always do. And so the foundation is God created it all. And so how, how do we apply this? How do we take this point? And the first thing is we need to be intentionally reminding ourselves that God created everything. On the way here, say, this is, this is God's world. We should be thankful and grateful for all that he's created. It's why it's good to get away out of the building sometimes and see what God has created. But also, as you do that, remember that we are responsible to him, that he has claims over us. And so, you know, part of, part of the takeaway of this is, are there tangible ways we can remind ourselves of this intangible concept? Those of you with kids, are you constantly reminding them, you know, God made all this. God has authority of all this, and we trust him because he is good, and he is right. And so this is one of those remember things to constantly be reminding your kids. It's interesting, in, in um, Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic teaching, from the second temple period, which goes all the way through the life of Christ, by the way, all the way through Herod's um, temple, the instructions for the Levites were to recite Psalm 24 the first day of every week. And so Psalm 24, just like we did this morning, was recited the first day every week. They did that to remember that God is creator. In fact, even in some Jewish traditions today, that still happens and is still recited. And they do that on the first day of the week to remind themselves God began to create the world on that day. And so they're they're finding ways to keep reinforcing a concept we know, but we forget the implications of. And so we need to understand God has a claim on our lives. Remember that and draw near to him because of that. Then we get to verses 3 through 6, the middle portion. And this is a portion that we often remember about the Psalms. And this talks about how can we approach this holy God in worship. We, if, if we're honest, we know we're not worthy. We have sin in our lives. So how can we approach a holy God? How can we come into his presence? The God that created all things, how can we approach him in worship? And the answer in those four verses are by making sure we are right with him and wholly devoted to only him, both in our heart and in our actions. So we want to dive into this because there's a lot here. The first verse, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And this is a phrase of coming up to the, the, the Mount Zion, to the Temple Mount. Now, if this was written by David, something David, maybe Solomon. But um, if this was written by David, at times the temple wasn't there yet because Solomon built the temple. But the tabernacle was still there. The plans for the temple were still there. And so they knew that, that to ascend was to come up to the temple, to the mountain of the Lord, to worship. And so verse 3 is really just a saying saying, who can come into God's house to worship? Stand in his holy place. And it's a reminder that God is holy. We sang about that this morning. So how can I come in and stand without being killed in front of a holy God and worship him? What does my heart need to be? Just for fun, I do have a, a current picture of Jerusalem that I think is here. And this is the southeast corner. Looking up, that's the, the wall of Jerusalem, but it's also the wall of the Temple Mount. So on top of that is the temple, but this is the Kidron Valley. And you can look up and, and you can see how even right at Jerusalem, you're going up. 
And so these words would have really made sense to the people singing them. I'm going up to the temple. I'm going up to worship. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And our first thought should be no one. We don't have the right credentials. And so verse 4 goes on to what those credentials are. And and verse 4 lists four different credentials. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And and the, the first one of those four is clean hands. Our actions on the outside should be innocent and above reproach. And it's interesting, clean hands and a pure heart, the word for clean hands is innocent to others, innocent in my external actions and those things out. Pure heart is pure in motives of what's on the inside. And so right from, right from the start, the psalmist is saying what you do matters, your motives and what you think matters. Both have to do with your purity. Now, this is written to a people who at times got so, so engrossed in the law that it was all about external obedience and they forgot the internal. And that's what Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. But the psalmist says, you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. Like I said, clean, the word there is for innocent, innocent towards others, free from guilt. And hands was this idea of your exterior life towards others, to your neighbor, toward those around you. And so what the psalmist is saying is, you want to come right? You want to come ready to worship? You want to come where your worship actually will be heard and matter? Make sure you're right with others. Make sure you're above reproach with others. If there's anything there, make sure it's taken care of and can't be held against you. Jesus said the same thing. He said, if you know you have something with your brother and you come to worship, leave your gift at the altar, go make it right, and then come back. And the psalmist is saying that here. Make sure that you're right in your relationships around you. You know, if the night before you've had arguments or the day before or whatever, and you've had just fights in your home or you've had issues with others, make a real effort to resolve those before you walk in on Sunday morning. That might mean admitting you were wrong. That might mean asking for forgiveness. But make sure those things are right because they affect worship. This does not say that you have to be perfect in this area and never have had conflict with somebody. Anyone here never had conflict with somebody? No. I could go down to even this week or, you know, closer. Conflict happens. This has to do with, okay, where's the repentance? Where's the asking for forgiveness? Have I dealt with anything? And that's where Jesus went when he talked about it. One author said it means to be innocent of wrongdoing and readily ask for forgiveness when he or she has sinned. And so we're to come with clean hands toward each other. We're to come with pure heart. Our motives and our heart on the inside should be consistent with God's heart, showing integrity. Pure there means not mixed, not mixed with the world, but to be wholly devoted to. And this has to do with, do we come with right motives? Or am I just putting on a show by coming? It is so easy to come because that's what we're supposed to do on Sunday morning. And to come because I have friends here and I want to see them and they need to see me looking spiritual. So I'm going to sit and actually sing and and do these things. But no, this says come with a right heart. Make sure your motives are, are worthy and directed by God. 
And so the inside deals with our relationship with God. The external is love others. This is love God and making sure we're doing that right. Even so many verses you'll see in Scripture break these down to these two things. Even Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, that's our relationship with others, and to walk humbly with our God, that's the inside of being pure in heart. Jesus said, love God, love others. These are the two greatest commandments. And so when we come on Sunday morning, have we made an effort to be right with others? Have we made an effort to be right with God? Dealt with any sin? Making sure we're coming with the right motives. The fourth one there is does not give his heart to idols. He does not lift his soul to what is false, is what the ESV says. Some other translations say idols. And the word for false there is empty or void. And this is a phrase that is often used in terms of worship, which is why he is saying here, don't give your heart to idols. Have an undivided trust and devotion to God alone. Now, as you know from our Deep Idols series, I'm not talking about stop rubbing the little Buddha head on your way out and and worshiping that on your way to worship God. That's not what I'm talking about because I don't think that's our issue. Our issue is the deep idols of control and approval and power and, and those things we talked about, those things that we trust more than God to bring us satisfaction, that we trust more than God to live life by. Is there anything more important than God in our lives? We can go on a long time on that. Go listen to all six or seven weeks or whatever that. But it's saying, what's the qualification for coming to worship? Worship God alone. And for us, it means evaluating our hearts and saying, am I coming? And, and this week, have I trusted something in God Almighty other than God Almighty? Have I trusted in something else to get by, to get out of trouble, to, to find happiness, to find fulfillment? And so this refers to a, a devotion to Christ. Even, even Psalm 25, if you look ahead to verses 1 and 2 of the next chapter, Um, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Same word is used in this case to God alone. So this is a a word of worship. Oh my God, in you I trust. And that's a word of trust. Who do you trust? Who do you trust to get you through life? Who do you trust to get through the crud that happened this last week? Is it substance? Substance? Is it experiences? Is it friends? Or do you come back to the king of glory? And the psalmist is saying, evaluate that before you come to the hill. Before you come to worship. Don't give your heart to idols. Fourth qualification he he gives, and he's, he's basically given clean hands, pure heart, does not give heart to idols. And the last one is really interesting because it's basically don't lie. Does not lie. Does not swear deceitfully. If you look at the wording, doesn't lie. And I I really don't have a lot to say about that except don't lie. Because lying is something that we are now trusting a falsehood. We are trusting ourselves to try to get out of something or to try to get something we want instead of trusting God. Lying is a form of idolatry, always. And it's, it's, it's idolatry of self. And, and, and so... The psalmist says, evaluate 
whether or not you've been honest, whether or not you've had integrity. And this may seem like an arbitrary one-off of a lot of different sins he can mention, but lying tends to be one of those sins that infiltrates all other sins as well, like pride, because lying comes out of pride. We want something, so we trust a lie to get it. I want people to think I'm godly, so I you know, make them think I'm doing my Bible reading. I want a job, so I lie a little bit on my resume. I don't want to be punished or look bad. Or maybe I'm just going to do half-truths or omissions to mislead because that's not really lying. It is to a holy God. And, and so these are the four things that the psalmist says, start to think about. These are not meaning that this is all you have to think about when you come Sunday morning. They're the only sins that matter. But he's saying, come with clean hands. Right relationships with others. Come with a pure heart. Your motive's right and you're right with God. Come not giving your heart to idols. You haven't trusted, you haven't put something more important than God right now. And stop lying. Because lying impacts worship. All of these things impact worship. Just as we saw that, that sin keeps God from hearing our prayers, sin keeps our worship from being heard and being effective by God. In fact, if any of those, these, things, these four things are present, we stop growing and receiving God's blessings. It's, it's a wall that's put up in our spiritual walk. I mean, think of it. Think of the hypocrisy of coming to worship with any of these four things present. Think of the hypocrisy if I berate and yell at my family and my kids on the way here, and and, and I know that we've all done that. I know that it's a challenge because kids are, 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 are kids and sometimes can push our buttons. But if we don't try to make that right, think of what we're teaching our kids about worship. And so these things impact worship. If we have a life where we have showed a lack of integrity all week, where we have lied all week, and we come and say, holy, 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 I just want to puke. Because that's hypocrisy, and it's embarrassing to God. And so the psalmist rightfully says, let's get right with God before we, before we come to worship. Now, verse 4 can be discouraging because you read verse 4, no one in this room qualifies to get in the dugout. That's it. Verse 5 tells us why we can be qualified, why it can matter. Verse 5 says, make sure I get the... <laughs> ah, okay, we're going to read it here. Verse 5 says, he will receive blessing from the Lord, the one that does those four things, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And we might think, well, okay, yeah. And, and it is saying if we walk with God, if we come right to God, that's when we can receive his blessings, his favor. That's when we can see spiritual growth. That's when we can see God work in our lives. But that last phrase, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Two words there, underline them, righteousness and salvation. Where does our righteousness meaning to be right with God, to meet these four qualifications? Does it say righteousness from my own efforts? No, does it say righteousness because I'm just a really good person and people like me? No, it's righteousness from God and his salvation. 
So here's what the psalmist is saying. Here's your qualifications. You can't meet them, but God in his love and grace and mercy has given salvation. So now you can be righteous before God. It's why we on our way to church on Sunday morning or that morning or whenever we can say, God, I blew it. I messed up again. And he, please forgive me. And he will say, my son, I love you so much. I fully forgive you. I freely forgive you. And I make you righteous before me. What a gift if we will only humble ourselves and come to him and repent. See, the only person that has ever lived on the face of this planet that meets all four of those requirements is Christ. Only person. And and Christ then was crucified for doing nothing wrong. He was killed, and that was the penalty we deserve for, for breaking those four things. But because of that, we can repent, and his payment, his righteousness covers us. We depend on the merciful grace of God. So th- these verses shouldn't scare us away from coming, but remind us that we depend on the merciful grace of God. This song, as they sang it, was an admission of dependence to God. What's interesting, and those that are going to Israel with us are going to see this, what's interesting, on the southern steps, as you came up to the temple, there are thousands, hundreds, hundreds and I think up to a thousand now that they've uncovered, of mikvahs or cleaning baths. And so what they would do, they would, they would be singing the song, reminded of the song, who can come? And they would come to worship and they would confess and make themselves clean before God before they entered the temple. Now, I'm not saying, and you talked about this before, I'm saying we put a mikvah out here and we all get wet before we come in. But in our hearts, that's how quick, that's all it takes to be right with God. Repentance and seeking his forgiveness. I remember one missions trip I was going on. I was leading a missions trip for Biola. And um, one, the night before, one of the, our translator actually, which was interesting, um, sent me a letter and said, you know what? I'm not right with God. I can't go. And I appreciate him recognizing he wasn't right with God. But what broke my heart is it would take about 10 seconds to be right with God. God, I'm a sinner. I blew it. I need your forgiveness. Forgive me. And then his heart would have been right to go. He couldn't take that step out of his pride. And he missed out on being used by God and what God wanted to do. Don't let your pride keep you from repentance. But come to God. Verse 6 goes on. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And this is just a, a beautiful statement of if we follow these things, if we repent, if we're coming to worship in the right way, God calls us his generation. This is the generation of those that seek him, that seek the face of, uh, of the God of Jacob. Now I think of that, how do we want village to be, be known? What if whenever someone came to village, they walked out and said, that is a group that is seeking God. I can live with that. But we've got to be seeking God for that to be the, the, the sense that people get when they come here. And that's what 
what this is talking about. The generation, as we obey these things, this becomes what we're known for. This is the generation of those that seek him. And so when we come, do I have any actions that need to be repented of? Do I have any motives and thoughts that I need to make right before God? Have I made anything else more important or trusted other things than God? Have I lied or misled in any way? Let's be a generation that seeks God, that intentionally comes to him. And then we get verses 7 through 10. And 7 through 10 comes back to the theme of verses 1 and 2, who we're worshiping. And this is a description. So the question I have in your notes is, who is the God we worship? We worship and welcome the mighty, victorious King of glory. We invite him to come near. We worship and welcome the mighty, victorious King of glory. And out of these statements of what attitude should we have, what what mindset should we have, he comes back to the greatness of God. And I think he's coming back to the fear of God. Because as we understand who God is, as we make him big in our lives, we can't help but repent. We can't help but see the sin. We can't help but see him as holy. And so in verse 7, he says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And the wording there for lift up your heads and be lifted up, O ancient doors, it's, it's not literal at that point. In fact, their gates swung. They didn't lift up. But it's a statement of saying, I welcome you in. I'm looking forward to you. It's when you know that package from Amazon's coming that you've been waiting for and you're at the door peeking out for two hours. That's the idea of waiting for God, lifting up our eyes and welcoming him in. Did you come this morning expecting to meet God? Did you come this morning realizing we were going to sing in front of the King of glory? What a privilege. This is amazing. And so the psalmist is, is giving that excitement here, that sense that I'm looking forward to this, a hearty welcome to, one author said. And so we lift up our heads. We lift up our ancient doors. And then in verse 8 and then in verse 10, he talks about who this king of glory is. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And he's using these words that remind us of the victorious Lord, the Lord that is coming, that has won these battles. He's strong. He's mighty. In verse 10, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts or the Lord of heavenly armies. He is the king of glory. That is who you came to meet this morning. You didn't come to meet some wimpy God. You didn't come to hear some cool music. You didn't come to hear a joke about a rooster. You came to be confronted with the king of glory. And that should make us shudder, and that should make us excited all at the same time, which is how I would define the fear of God. Verse 9 has the the same wording as verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Are we welcoming the King of glory? Do we come expectant? The other part of these verses as I've meditated on this week, them on them this week is just a comfort and an encouragement to, to me. 
We come and we worship and we come with the right spirit and then we invite God's presence to be here. But, but don't miss the point that the Lord who is present is the Lord that wins victories. The Lord that fights the battles. And we are asking him and inviting him to be near. And that's what happens when we worship. We are before the throne of God. And the encouragement to be here is that this is a picture of victory. Of spiritual victory. I'm not saying you can take every issue you want in your life and say, God's going to deal with this. God's gonna, oh, he will, just maybe not how you think. But this is a statement of spiritual victories. Think about this. Any, any one of you had some difficulty this last week, some tra- challenges? Anyone? Let's raise our hands. Anyone have challenges last week or two? Yeah. Welcome to a Genesis 3 world. The promise here is that when we come to worship when, and we are worshiping God, not idols, when we are solely devoted to him, when we've worked to get our heart right, the king that fights those battles is the God that is close to us. And that means I don't have to fight those battles this week. I have to focus on being right with God, worshiping him, doing what he's asked. The God mighty in battle is by my side. I can take that home. That encourages me to fight another day. That encourages me in the, in the midst of difficulty to say, you know what, this isn't mine. This is God. And God said, he's got my problems today. God has said, he's got my issues today. When I come to him and repent and follow him. Psalm 24. A psalm of being his generation in worship. And we saw, why do we worship him? He made everything. He owns everything. How do we worship? We make sure our hearts on the inside and the outside are wholly devoted to him. And he ends by saying, remember who you worship. The king of glory. Open up the gates. Lift up the gates. That the king of glory may come in. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. It is encouraging and it is challenging all at the same time because, Lord, you want our hearts. And you know that if our hearts are far from you, if our hearts stray from you, that we won't experience the growth, we won't experience your favor, we won't experience the victories you have for us. And so, Lord, you, you, you crave our hearts. May we be a church, may we be a generation that seeks your face first and alone, that devotes ourselves to you, that makes sure that we even take 15 minutes next Sunday as we come to worship to make sure our hearts are right and just see how you change our time of worship. Lord, strip away any sin that is in our lives, no matter how hard that is, Strip that away so we can be a people devoted to you and have nothing that is standing in the way of our relationship with you. And God, you are the king of glory. And we trust you because of that. We do not worship other idols because of that. You are the king of glory. Help us to live like that. In your precious name, amen.